This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Peter Hadi, who is the founder of Kenoma, which is now part of Marvell Semiconductor. And uh, Peter was also a distinguished engineer at Apple, where he was one of the core people on QuickTime, helped develop that, and has worked on a handful of other video-related projects. So welcome, Peter. Good to be here. So tell us about how you decided to go the hardware route. Well, Sounds like you're a video person. Yeah. You know, I. Um, it turns out at some point I, I realized that I'm a, I'm a software person kind of at heart, and I, I ended up doing a lot of video, but almost all the software I've done through my career has been for hardware companies. Mm-hmm. You know, I started at Apple, which, uh, you know, I think is, despite the value of the software, is still fundamentally a hardware company. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, my startup, when we started Kenoma, we, uh, we worked very closely with Sony and then Palm um, and then uh, some of the, the phone manufacturers. And so, you know, the thing about being a software person working on hardware is you're always the victim of somebody else's decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you get software people together and say, why didn't they put more RAM? Like if, if this thing had been 100 <laughs> megahertz faster, it would have been like, you know, so easy. Right. Uh-huh. And so we've always been building software for hardware and we've never had our own hardware to do it on. And so it just at some point it started to make sense since we had landed at Marvell, which is very, very much a, a hardware company, a silicon company, mm-hmm. um, really the bottom of the hardware stack. And, you know, there are people who know how to do that. So we started talking to them and that that led us to doing some prototypes, which led to the products here. And, you know, it really is those decisions. You know, we, we can say, like, we're going to leave out this much RAM because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's going to save us 25 cents and that's our 25 cents. And now right, we've right, got right. like an extra three months work to make everything fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's a very, very interesting, it's a very interesting experience actually to, to have uh, that control. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're lucky not that many people get to kind of dabble in both sides right, at, right, a, at right. a professional level like that. So it's still yeah. hard, but at least you get to own the hardness now. Yeah, no, it's, it's mm-hmm. our, you know, it's our bad decisions, not somebody else's. So there's nobody <laughs> to shake your fists at. So you just, yeah. you get on with solving the problem. Right, right. Well, how would you say, I mean, the thing that we're seeing a lot of right now is, is there has been the the software boom and and like there's lots of development tools and processes and in, in place to help people develop software but now we're seeing people with the software background come in and start doing hardware and so as one of those people what have you found that the experience has been like like what was surprising what what have you learned what have you not learned yeah it's um i mean i think you know when you start there's like the process of developing yeah i mean the first thing and it, it's sort of obvious but it's hard to do is just you have to realize that Every discipline, you know, in making a product um, is incredibly deep, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when when you know you you're doing hardware, you, you're oh, we just add this chip, you know, we we need this sensor, just throw it on the board, it'll take mm-hmm. a minute, and it only cost a quarter, you know, mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. true. Um, and it, it's very complicated, and so you really have to cultivate um, relationships with the engineers 
who are helping you, who you're working with. Um, and so, you know, the, the hardware engineer, the main hardware engineer we work with, you know, we've all gotten to know very well over the last, the last two or three years. Um, and be, just because of lots of long, wandering conversations. You know, one of the features that we did in uh, Kenoma Create and Kenoma Element is that the pins are reprogrammable. Hmm. So there's not, you know, there's not a digital pin or a ground pin. You can configure that in software. Huh. Mm -hmm. And for a software person, that's like natural because everything's reconfigurable. But in yeah. hardware, it's, it's a little bit radical. I mean, we're not the only people who have, who have done it, but it, it's unusual. And to do it inexpensively is hard. And so, you know, the first circuits that we, we saw to do that were, you know, oh, it's going to add $5 to the cost. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And through some clever design, which is kind of shared between the, the hardware design and the, the software, we were able to do that for, you know, I mean, like very little, you know, 50 cents a dollar kind of thing. Huh. Per I mean, it's, it's some money, but it, it's, it's like practical to yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah. And so it's those collaborations and, and you know, not accepting the, the first person who says, oh, that's impossible mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, yeah. to, to kind of wind your way through it. And I think that's been really the, the biggest the biggest lesson. And as a result, now the, the pins are, are basically just abstracted to the point of being variables in software. Yeah, to a, lar to a large extent. We're always, we're always trying to push that a little further because there's always some limit in the underlying hardware. But, um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, it works. It works really, really well. The other thing is just incredibly, we found incredibly hard in hardware, um, is, is uh, certifications. Hmm. Certifications. Yeah. So you can build a product, you can make it all work, right? But to be able to legally import it into a country and sell it is a whole mm -hmm. other problem. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have um, requirements for batteries. There's some parts of the world where if there's a battery, like you're supposed to ship it outside the package. There's others where hmm. you're supposed to ship it installed. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Great. You know, there's different <laughs> rules about encryption technology and, and SSL, you know, and, and just basic kind of HTTPS yeah, support yeah. is enough to trip them in some, in some areas. In the, in the U.S., it turns out, in fact, if your um, crypto implementation is open source, mm -hmm. um, it's easier to get um, approval than if it's closed. If it's interesting. Oh, interesting. Apparently, so the NSA can more easily study your okay. code, <laughs> yeah. I like to imagine. Uh -huh. You know, in the, the EU, there's these very strict rules about electrostatic discharge, apparently because, you know, it's it's very dry air hmm. in northern European countries or something. So that was terrible. We failed that for the first generation uh -huh. of Create. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then um, Wi-Fi has all these crazy rules, and they change. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we almost couldn't import the latest round of Kenoma Create manufacturing into the United States because the FCC changed rules between the time where we started manufacturing and the time we were ready to bring them What? In. Oh, yeah. So the warning period on these things is like a matter of a week or two? Um, you know, in fairness to the FCC, they had been talking about it in places that our Wi-Fi team hadn't been paying attention to. Okay. okay. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we fell into this crazy window and so we had to we had to scramble to make that work yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but it but it did but it you know it's just it's such an alive environment you think it's your product you think it's yeah. the, the board design but it exists inside the real world and mm -hmm. the real world has all of these different you know regions and rules and, and constraints that you have to be aware of and they they all cost money yeah yeah and i mean you know it starts to be tens of thousands of dollars which is i mean you know if you're apple you 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 just do it it's no it's no problem but if you're a small startup right doing your first five thousand units ten thousand units and you're running out of money that compile it, button is expensive it's really expensive in hardware and that's you know as a software engineer i i really appreciate now much more than ever before why hardware engineers are just so conservative most of the time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know they're just so so reluctant to make a change and it's not right. because they can't it's they know the ripple effects yeah experimentation is costly it takes a long time it can literally break things. Mm -hmm. There's no, it's not like there's a 
there's not an easy kind of um, you know rollback. On your, yeah, it also on your takes Git. takes time to undo decisions. Yeah, yeah. As well, do you see that getting more modular, easier, easier to deal with these kinds of things? Like, you know, are there people who will just take your certification problem to make it go away? Are there modules that you can install to control a battery charger, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is absolutely getting easier um, to do kind of the, the, the more standard, the more common things, you know. And so, um, you know, the, on the Wi-Fi certification and some of the EMI certification, you know, you can buy modules with some of the main, you know, the chips on them that are designed to be certified. You, know, mm -hmm. you, you still have to go through some formalities yourself because you're the person shipping it. But, you know, if you kind of follow their rules, you're good. Mm -hmm. um, the place where you get in trouble, of course, is, you know, I think everybody likes to imagine they're a little different than the cookie cutter solution. It's mm -hmm. um, especially engineers. I think there's this habit of seeing where you're different and, and minimizing where you're the same. And so there, there's a real tendency to, to just kind of forge ahead. And, you know, the other one that is a real killer there is cost. Mm -hmm. You know, people are so concerned about the bomb cost and they, they don't worry about the process cost, right? Mm -hmm. How much time is this going to take? What other expert am I going to have to bring in to help? What really tricky problem am I going to have? You know, and we, we looked at this with Kenoma Element. We, uh, the original designs were a little bit bigger, but they, they had a circuit board antenna. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, I mean, it's a printed antenna. Yeah, printed antenna. It's, it's theoretically, it's great because it's, you know, make your circuit board a little bigger and you just print some traces. And, and it's free. Yeah, it's almost free. Parts-wise. But the tuning will kill you to get it to work hmm. just right. Mm -hmm. And um, it also has an orientation issue because it's, you know, it's flat on the board. Mm -hmm. So it's better mm -hmm. in one orientation than, than others. Yeah. And so we started there. Once we, we saw what it was going to take, we're like, oh, the 20 cent ceramic antenna looks really, really yeah. good. And so, you know, that's, <laughs> that's what we're using now. Yeah, yeah. Because um, yeah, with, so, with a printed antenna, you can't... Uh, the proximity of the antenna to other things inside of the case and the ground planes and everything and how the person that you're using is holding it like all makes a difference on the radiation pattern and so you just can't design that so the way that one usually does a printed antenna is to print the antenna and make it a little bit too long and then get it back and put it into the final enclosure and stuff and then just like solder network <laughs> analyzer cables onto it and look at the response and see what it's doing and see where it's resonating. And then you tune it by trimming off the end of it with a razor blade uh -huh. or maybe adding some components to a matching network on it and just kind of like trial and error, look at mm -hmm. the stuff and like make it look right. And then you measure what you end up looking at and then print that. And then that's your final design. Mm -hmm. yeah, or you yeah. could just spend 20 cents and get a ceramic antenna. Yeah, you know, and, <laughs> and there's worse things than that. So, I mean, I'm in a semiconductor company, so I, I get exposed to some of this. You know, the Wi-Fi chips um, have to be calibrated too. You know, mm -hmm. because there's there's analog electronics in there, and and so they have to be tuned in a, in a way and configured to match with the antenna. I you know we assume I assumed hardware's hardware. You make a chip, and you know they all behave the same. And it turns out, you know, uh, the wafer that they make a chip on is round, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the properties are not consistent all the way across the wafer. Mm -hmm. huh. And so you have to like take these chips and like measure and they, they recommend you know like a thousand would be a good number like <laughs> like the the properties of these things to get to a calibration that will work well for all of them uh -huh. and that again is like you don't want to do that you want to right. buy a module where somebody yeah. has done that there's a company i have once i finally understood this there's a company that actually says that they have a router where they get um, you know, 50% better than average Wi-Fi performance. And what they're they're doing is they're calibrating every chip individually hmm. as part wow. of the manufacturing process. Wow. And so, I mean, 
didn't you like think like every chip was kind of like yeah, yeah, like yeah. every other chip? Yeah, yeah. yeah no. Is there is there a market that'll sell you like a, a premium cut of a silicon wafer there, like there like is. with meat? All 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 of all computers are like that. Like you really? know when you when you go and you get your you know same same processor from Intel, but they have like the two gigahertz version and the two point five gigahertz version and everything. Those are the same design. They just bin like when they come out of the manufacturing process, they test them and like the ones that perform to the higher spec are put into the higher spec bin and sold for more money. And then the ones that, huh. that can't run as fast, they sell as the less premium ones. It looks like marketing, but it's actually an artifact of, of silicon quality. So they can sell all of them, yeah. yeah. Huh. But so, you know, I mean, it's, 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 um, I mean, for me, it's been right. fascinating just to be exposed to this so directly. Because, you know, the theory, you, you can read about it. And you just, you don't always believe it or, or internalize it and understand it so well. And so it's been a really, I mean, a really fantastic opportunity to be kind of camped out with Marvell with people who live this and do this every day. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so Kenoma Create, what is it? It is a prototyping device. And, um, you know, we've, we've, everybody's worked with these single board computers, you know, Pi and um, Arduino and, I mean, BeagleBone, they're, they're really great. And um, they got tons of people into making. And the thing that we found, you know, Marvell could have done one of those. We make chips, we make reference boards. We could have sold one of them inexpensively. But we, we wanted to do something that would get more people in. And what we found and we, when we were talking to people who used Pi and used some of the other products is it was just there were too many hurdles for them to get it working. You know, you need to add Wi-Fi, you need to update the firmware yourself. If you want a screen, you got to put that in. Some people, a lot of software people were like freaked out by the bare board. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I just, I don't want to go near it. Mm -hmm. um, Looks like you'll burn your finger at the minimum or break something off likely. Yeah. yeah poke it with like, you know, some, some yeah. contact that's sticking out, which I've done. Uh -huh. um, and so, we, you know, we just wanted to make something that more people could approach. And so Kenoma Create kind of puts all that in one box. It has a touch screen. It has Wi-Fi. It has a speaker. It has microphones. It's got lots of pins that are reprogrammable. It's got a battery. Um, and it's got a case. And so you can do all the same sorts of things you do with those devices. But, you know, to get started is... You know, turn it on and, mm -hmm. and it's ready to go. And then the other big thing we did coming from a software background was not only simplify the hardware, but also simplify the software. And so it's a Linux computer underneath. If you like that and love that, knock yourself out. But our intention is the main way that you interact with it is through JavaScript. Mm -hmm. So it's a fully JavaScript programmable device. And everything you see on the device and the built-in user, user apps as well is all coded in JavaScript. So it's not something where we said, hey, you know, here's a scriptable interface for you guys, but we have, we do everything a, a different way. Right. This is, this is the way we build our stuff too. So this is, I think, one of the most important transformations that we've seen in hardware over the last couple of years is the emergence of um, JavaScript in particular, but also, you know, Python as a scripting language for embedded systems. And it, it you know, began, a lot of people started playing with this stuff in a hobbyist context on, on the Raspberry Pi and Arduino, but it, it has been moving up into more and more sophisticated applications, applications that are getting closer and closer to production, um, you know, deployment. This is very important to me, in, in my view, in terms of making this whole area accessible, because you don't have to do it in C or assembly. And what you hear from a lot of the old school embedded systems people is, uh, you know, oh, these kids who are using it, come on, JavaScript on embedded systems, that's ridiculous, you can't actually do anything with it. And it's starting to sound like uh, the sort of the sound of disruption. Uh, that's what people have said about uh, things like the personal computer in the past, or the web, and uh, or social networks. And uh, this strikes me as following the same path. 
You know, I mean, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's from a, from a pure engineering standpoint, the people who say JavaScript will never be as fast are right. You know, but th this comes back to what we were talking about just, just a few moments ago with hardware. You know, there are things you can do in hardware that will be lower cost, right? But to do them is incredibly hard, right? And so, you know, as pro software programmers, you know, we gave up on mostly working in assembly language because C worked really, really well. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, there's a few people who, who are still awesome assembly programmers and, and there's places for that. But... Mm -hmm. But it's kind of drifted away as a skill. And, you know, with JavaScript, we're starting that cycle again, mm -hmm. I, I believe. You know, it's, I'm, I'm not one of these people who thinks you should use it for everything. You know, I think it has its place, and, and I think that's a very broad spectrum. But mm -hmm. when you get to things that really demand raw performance, especially in embedded, yeah, you should dip down to C or dip down to assembly. And we, we always tell that story because people will say, oh, you know, is is how fast is this javascript engine you know what can i do and and say it doesn't matter because you know the script is making the decision of when the button is pressed which function to call mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that that function has to be quick enough but you know you've you've got 50 milliseconds before even human reaction time can notice you know, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. like that so so don't sweat it like what you want is the flexibility that scripting gives you to change that behavior effortlessly developing a prototype you should be focusing on making your LED blink and not like wondering about memory allocation. Yeah. And so, you know, you have with embedded programmers what, what we were talking about again earlier with hardware engineers. They, they grew up to be very, very conservative. Like, don't, just don't touch it. Like, it, it kind of works. We're not exactly sure why the timing don't is. Look at it. You're looking at it. <laughs> like, you know, it'll change the timing. It might not work anymore. Like, don't. Uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and so that inhibited a lot of creativity in, in uh, embedded in, you know, what's now called IoT. And by opening it up to scripting, you can make it a lot safer and you can try a lot more things. And the truth is the tools are good enough now that you can use that in production in some scenarios, not mm -hmm. every single one yet. But, you know, you look a few years out and, you know, absolutely, this is, this is going to be like, I believe, mainstream, not just kind of like interesting and hobbyist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's the transport of a kind of model of software development into hardware where, you know, in hardware you have a very clear model of some fixed development costs at the beginning and then a marginal cost that's really significant and really critical to the success of your product. And in software, the economics are, are wild. You have fixed development costs and then practically nothing for deployment. Not realistically nothing, but, but very close to nothing. And um, I think what you have are a lot of software people who are kind of realizing that there's a grand world of physical stuff out there and then going, wait a minute, you guys are paying way too much attention to this marginal cost question and you have to like loosen up and and recognize that a lot of your expenses are going into the upfront development stuff and start to get less formal about that and much more flexible. But, I mean, the other challenge is these devices are not static anymore. You know, when mm -hmm. you when you built a, a CD player, the firmware stayed. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when you're building a connected device, the things that it wants to connect to change over time, right? Because, you know, when you put these things into your home or you put them into the infrastructure of a city, they last five years, 10 years, 20 years, right? And so you can't assume at the beginning, you know, everything that it, that it wants to do. And so scripting is the thing that we use everywhere for kind of quickly updating things, right? For adding, mm -hmm. adding things and, and, and just adapting. Mm -hmm. and, and it's proven time and time again to be the right answer there. So it's a matter of, of keeping things flexible and modular and abstracted 
so that the whole thing doesn't break eventually. Yeah, I mean, you, why should you throw out your hardware because the software is obsolete? You know, yeah. my, um, you know, apps are this model where uh, that everybody now gets. We mm -hmm. we all understand, you know, apps on your computer, apps on your phone, apps on your TV. Maybe you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. thinking about it. My son, this was a few years ago. We were walking down the the, the street, and um, you know that he he was young enough that he always wanted to push the button on the crosswalk, right? And so usually we walk up to it, push it, and it beeps. And mm -hmm. he walked up to it, and he pushed the button, and it said, "Wait." in a very uh -huh, stern voice. Uh -huh, uh -huh. He pressed it again, it said, wait. And he thought, this was cool. And he looked at me and goes, they installed a new app. Ah, uh, nice. And wow. that, yeah. you know, we're, we're raising a generation of people who don't think of electronic things as stationary fixed behavior devices. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Let, behavior is separate than the physicality of the object. Yeah, exactly. And so mm -hmm. scripting is, is a great way to do that because, you know, if anybody's ever tried to do a build of embedded software to update the firmware on a, on a device, it's a, it's a, it's a monstrosity. You know, it's the, it's hard to do. Embedded tools are never easy to use, mm -hmm. right? One of the wonderful things about scripting is it's still true today. You can get a text editor, type something in and the file will run. No compiler, no linker, you know, mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. fancy mm -hmm. deploy, no nothing. And that simplicity means that almost anybody with a little bit of dedication can dive in and do something. It's incredibly empowering. And I, you know, I think it's this, um, I mean, to, to extrapolate backwards and forwards a little bit at the same time, it's, it's kind of the natural evolution of what um, started with open source with, with Stallman so many years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we, we owe this huge, huge debt to him um, to just put the idea of open source and formalize it. But, you know, his point was anybody can change this if they'll take the time to learn how. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Richard Stallman's in the top, you know, 0.001% of intelligence of People all People who can learn ever. how to do things. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so for him, it's like, yeah, I mean, knock yourself out. But, you know, what can we do with open software and open devices to lower the bar so that mm -hmm. more people can do what he imagined? Right, and, right. And I think it's a very natural extension of the open source movement to, mm -hmm. to bring this to more people. Exactly. And, and I feel like that impulse has been reinvigorated over the last few years. There were, you know, 15 years ago when people were really fighting against Windows and wanted to see Linux emerge as the successor to Windows. There was a lot of effort in, uh, in stuff like GIMP to replace Photoshop, but that tended not to, th those were all inferior products to the commercial version. And a big part of it was that the kinds of people who, you know, run free Linux software tend to be pretty technologically adept. So they want features rather than usability. So they develop the stuff for features rather than usability. And then the onboarding becomes very, very difficult. And as recently as, you know, five years ago, you saw this if you tried to download, for instance, NumPy and SciPy to do scientific computing in Python. That's a replacement for, uh, for MATLAB, essentially. But it was extraordinarily difficult. You had to install a new C compiler on your MacBook <laughs> to make it work, <laughs> which is just Python to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got into this awful dependency hell. You know, um, nothing, nothing was compatible. Now you have two versions of Python on your on OS X, and and everything is conflicting. And um, you know, most people would just give up. Now there, there's been this movement to like take stuff like that, package it, containerize it. So now you have like Anaconda Python, which you install just like you would install really slick Apple or, or Adobe software. There's an installer, you download it, you double click it, you sit back, it installs itself. And then you have NumPy and SciPy and, and this yeah. flavor of Python that works with everything. And you can do something. Yeah. And so this, this makes me think of, um, you know, that for, for hardware. Yeah. I see it also has kind of like a, a Scratch-esque interface as well. Yeah, we, um, you know, it's funny, we have a JavaScript 
I mean, everywhere. And so uh, as a chip company, we, we, our salespeople come back and, and eventually, since we were talking about JavaScript so much, they started, we've started to have, it's, it's amazing, customers who are like, we want JavaScript on this chip. That's mm. as, as, as a feature for the products we want to build. And so uh, one of them was uh, looking at making toys um, to remain nameless. Um, and um, they were like, we really like Blockly. We think it's, we think it's great. And so we took a look. And so Blockly is kind of Google's evolution of Scratch. It's actually some of the same people at this point working on it. And so it's a visual programming language. And um, the, the super cool thing, I mean, it's nicely done and it's open and, and works. But the super cool thing from our perspective is that Blockly is designed to generate clean JavaScript out the back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's, so it's, it's like it's, in, it's, it's internal language. And so in some Blockly uh, editors, you have like a view source button where you can see the JavaScript that corresponds to your blocks. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. we've got this working kind of just for a demo for this particular customer. And then we're like, oh, this is cool. Mm -hmm, <laughs> so, you know, we kind of ran with it and um, we, we've got some stuff out there now where you can, you know, you can control lights, you can do client server interactions between different products. Um, and it's very cool. You go to a web page because mm -hmm. Blockly is Google, so it's all web-based. And you type in the IP address of your Kinoma Create or your Kinoma Element and your web page deploys the JavaScript to the device. Wow. So like it's it's all mm -hmm. just there. Yeah, yeah. And we um you know we use this internally a bit um, with people just so they don't have to learn the APIs. They can use the blocks, see what the code it generates is, and then borrow from that instead of yeah, reading yeah. the documentation. But we also used it with an after-school program of uh, fifth and sixth grade girls. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, a bunch of them walked in, so oh, this is like scratch. We're good. And, you know, they just ran with it. And there's, there's, and the ones who hadn't very quickly picked it up. And so I think this is also part of what's interesting when you think about IoT. You know, we have um, if this, then that, if mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. for the, the tuned in, which is, is a very powerful way to connect and give some of your own logic to, to the Internet of Things, right? What if you could bring all the other programming constructs, you know, that exist, not just an if statement? And so JavaScript is sort of that, and Blockly is kind of in between, right? Where mm -hmm. you've got this nice path where people can kind of start with programming before they even really know they're doing it. And some of them will stop there, and if they stop with blocks and that's enough to let them do what they want, it's great. But it gives them like a really direct way to say, oh, I want to like learn real programming, you know, mm -hmm. with source code and struggling about matching braces. So, you know, the, the nice thing is that there's this whole collection of tools from if this, then that, through to Blockly, through to source code, that all can kind of work on the same infrastructure. And so ordinary people can get started with controlling and customizing products that have scripting mm -hmm. built in, um, in in a very painless way without having to become, you know, real programmers from, from the very beginning. That's precisely how I learned to program was with a software called Stata. That's a statistical mm -hmm. software and it has a, uh, a GUI interface, but every command that you put in prints out at, as a command line command at the bottom of the screen oh, nice. in a little terminal. Mm -hmm. And so you really quickly, it's a painless introduction to programming. You don't even realize that you're learning to do it. What you realize is that it becomes faster if you want to repeat a command to go back to the command line, change one parameter and hit enter than it does to go back to the, the menu. So you start doing that and then you and then you go, oh, it would be great if I could do this five times. I'll loop this. And then suddenly you're writing the scripts from the very beginning. No, and I think it's a great way to learn about looping, actually, because when you teach, I mean, people about loops, um, you know, especially people who aren't deep in, into 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 math and, and, and such, they're sort of like, but what's the point? Mm -hmm, you know, it, it's mm -hmm. very hard to motivate it. But if you've had to type the same thing five times or yeah. repeat the blocks ten times to get yeah, those yeah, yeah. ones, you're like, oh, I, I know why I want that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you understand why computers are great because yeah, know, you have to do something over and over again that you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Tell the computer to do it. 
I bet a lot of people have learned how to program when they've had to uh, rename a whole bunch of files. <laughs> yeah. That's always a good motivation. How, how did you get into programming? What was you your know, first programming language? So I was lucky. I grew up outside of Boston um, back when Digital Equipment Corporation was a big deal and the mini computer was a big deal. And so I had access through um, the parents of some of my friends um, to mini computers on the weekends, to PDP-11s, and they, oh, nice. they were in the schools. And so I started programming in BASIC um, mm -hmm. on teletypes um, oh, because, wow. because I could, and it seemed really cool. Um, and then I, I managed to find my way to Apple IIs, um, which were hiding in various places. Is this a teletype that is synchronously connected to a mainframe, or or is it? Um, are you com are you writing out a script and then batching? Oh, so this was this was connected, but it was a, it was I mean it was a teletype with you know a roll of newsprint paper coming through it and an optical coupler over a phone line to the uh -huh, central uh -huh. computer and keys that you know when you were that age to push down took like some force in uh -huh, your arm to uh -huh, do it. it was uh -huh. it was really spectacular actually. Oh, that sounds amazing. That's a good yeah. lead into our next uh, segment that we have called tools, which is what it sounds like. We always ask our guests what tools they use that are essential. <laughs> so I, uh, I have a category of tools that I, I love. Uh, I mean, I do programming for so many different kinds of systems. You know, we, we do iOS and Windows and Linux and embedded and all this stuff. The one tool that I always lose my mind if I don't have is some sort of a profiler. Hmm. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, I worked on, on QuickTime at, at Apple for years. And, you know, back when the processors were 25, 30 megahertz, those, those were the high-end Macs mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. um, every cycle counted and you wanted, you, you wanted to know what's going on. We didn't have any, any tools at that point for profiling. And so, you know, the way we profile is we would do something and then we would press the debugger key and look at the stack trace to see where we were. We'd say, <laughs> go and we do it again. And if you started to see the same place get hit a bunch, you're like, that's a hotspot. Uh -huh. yeah. uh -huh. And uh -huh. uh, I mean, it worked. But, uh, you know, the, the profiler that, um, the two that I use all, all the time now, one is uh, Instruments, which is built into Apple's Xcode suite these days. And it's by far the most gorgeous profiler I've ever huh. used in my life. And it's great because you can have a process running and attached to it and you can get, you can get data really easily. Um, and, you know, so many developers, um, when they're doing mobile apps, will show me their app and I'm like, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's not smooth there. It's like, this is slow. And they're like, yeah, how do I figure that out? And you show them instruments and their eyes just go wide. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, and that tool, I mean, is great for all sorts of other things like analyzing network traffic and disk IO, you know, whatever ails you, it will, it'll give you insights into. And the truth about optimizing, about making things fast is most programmers are actually not bad at it, but they need the visibility. Mm -hmm. They have to guess what makes it slow. They're terrible. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, but if you show them, oh, this is slow, I can change that. Um, and then the other one I use a lot, um, you know, when you do profiling and you're working in a scripting language, very, very often what you'll see in the profiler, the native profiler, is you're spending a lot of time in the scripting language. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the new people in my team will come back to me and say, oh, that's really bad, the scripting thing, forget it. Like, you know, we've, we've got to put everything in C. Yeah. And so we um, eventually got tired of that. And so we did, as part of our, our XS6 virtual machine, we did a profiler. Really? And so it has a, it's not the world's fast, fanciest profiler, but it, it works very, very well. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it turns out output that's sort of like gprof, which is the Linux kind of way of doing that. And so, yeah, you can profile your scripts um, either on Mac or on Kinema Create, and, you know, whatever, and get a really good sense of where the hotspots are. And it also shows you, which is really important, 
um, if it's the garbage collector that's taking all your time because it's one of the nice. classic things in a dynamic language that will burn you. Right. And you can see which functions are triggering the garbage collector the most. And that's, again, it's, it's a good hint about right, what's right. going on. And so um, no, I, I live for those because performance is, has always been one of the things that I really care about. Um, and I, I found just makes such a big difference in, in making a good product. Wow. And it helps you stay in the scripting language longer. If you can write clean JavaScript mm-hmm. and not have to drop down to C or assembly. Exactly. So tell me about XS6 you mentioned. Sure. So XS6 is our JavaScript engine. And so it, it's a little bit interesting. We don't use um, somebody else's engine. So we don't use V8, um, for example, or SpiderMonkey. Um, hmm. And the reason, those those engines are awesome. So it's not out of any lack of respect or appreciation for them. But they are um, they're optimized for raw speed in the browser where you can't go to C code because the hmm. browser security rules say no. Hmm. Right? And so they're kind of living in this 100% pure JavaScript world. And we're not. Because mm-hmm. we can in embed, we can use C, and so our engine is much more optimized for memory footprint mm-hmm. um, and for you know code size and, and things like that, and for running on a lower power horsepower device where you can't run a JIT all the time and, and do all those crazy things. And so it's it's a very different style of engine, but it runs really beautifully on embedded or embedding it even into a mobile app where mm-hmm. some of those other engines might be a little big. And so the the, the cool thing about that engine, open source, of, of course, is um, it's on the very forefront of adopting the new ECMAScript 6th edition standard, sometimes called Ec- uh, ECMAScript 2015, which is this huge revision to the language that makes it so much more kind of modular, powerful, mm-hmm. um, concise for writing things and uh, I'm so I'm so proud of the work of the team there's a, a suite out there from uh, Kangax that um, measures the ECMAScript 6th edition compatibility of everybody's engine and forever for I mean since back in June we've been like in the lead on that mm-hmm. and we're at uh, 98% of feature complete on that and uh, for a long time everybody was you know down in the 40s and 50s yeah. and, Chrome is catching up. They're at 91%. And at some point, they're going to overtake us with V8 <laughs> and good for Google. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. But you know, I, I think it's awesome um, because one of the things that's happened in Embedded for years is you always use the old stuff. You know, you use, you know, C99 has for a long time been modern on embedded systems, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so All there's the some, stuff is very old. And yeah. so there's something very cool about using, being out in the forefront of using the latest languages, the latest tools in embedded and being able to, to bring that on. And so it doesn't have to be the backwater of stuff that, that finally can work on this hardware. Joins the community. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Our next segment, um, something we call click spiral, which is where, uh, each of us brings in something that's absorbed much too much of our time, either online or offline. Cause everything now is an analogy to something you do online. So uh, if you, the listener, have a click spiral that you want to send in to us, you can email hardware at O'Reilly.com. That's also the email address for any hardware podcast kind of related stuff. But send us your click spirals and David and I will lose a great deal of time to them and then um, talk about them on the show. We sacrifice our productivity so that yours may live. Exactly. So, uh, David, tell us about your click spiral this morning. Uh, well, the past couple of days I've been reading about this uh, this animatronic band called the Rock of Fire Explosion. Um, if anyone uh, ever went to Showbiz Pizza Place in the, the like 90s, there was this animatronic band featuring this group of like hillbilly animals um, okay. and they would play popular music and also wish you happy birthday if you were there. Were they the knockoff of Chuck E. Cheese? Or Chuck E. Cheese came after. Okay. Yeah, Chuck E. Cheese came after them. How, how convincing are they in comparison to like like a 1970s display at Disney World in which like 
Abraham Lincoln talks. Yeah, about. it's like a, it's about it's about like that. Um, this 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 guy also invented whack a mole. Apparently, the same guy. His name's hmm. Aaron Fetcher, but he's a uh, he runs a company called Creative Engineering, and I guess they're still doing stuff. Um, I think that there was a big boom during the showbiz pizza place era, but now it's just him and like maybe a couple of other people, but they've made a, they've made a documentary about, about what it is that they're doing. And also he started putting up some like YouTube videos with like programs that he's created for the rock of fire explosion. There's one actually from the end of last year, I guess like a train hit a car in front of his workshop. <laughs> um, the people were safe. You can see the people getting out, but it's like okay. narrated by the, it's like a news report by the, by the guy by, from rock of fire. Explosion. Well, by the, by the, by the animatronic animals, <laughs> like talking in like Florida hill, hillbilly, like accents and, and wisecracking and stuff. It's pretty great. So um, what do you think has happened to the market for like robotic wonderment now that I, I everyone think it's coming has, back. I think it's coming yeah? back. You hmm. know, I think that the market for robotic wonderment is going to hinge upon what uh, Disney does with the new star Wars exhibit that they're putting in at Disneyland. Because apparently they're like huh. clearing out a whole bunch of Disneyland and like putting in a whole Star Wars experience. And then we had a uh, BB-8 roll through our office. Oh yeah, in December oh, that yeah, was yeah, robotic yeah. wonderment. Yeah, yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The little Sphero one. Yeah, it was a little magical actually. Yeah. The way yeah. that the, the head stays on. Yeah. Well, apparently they uh, they they were Sphero was a company that made just a little ball robot before, and they were at this this hardware accelerator program at at Disney HQ. And Bob Iger saw them working on stuff and he was like, hey, we're working on this movie and like showed them some top secret set photos from from the set of the new Star Wars. And we're like, hey, can you make it do this? Can you make a head stick to the top of it? And they were like, oh, actually, like a few months ago, we were like messing around one night and thought it'd be funny to put a wig on our little sphere robot. So we actually worked out the mechanics for a, a <laughs> remaining vertical <laughs> magnetic mask to stay inside of the uh, the thing. So yeah, sure, we can do that. And then he was like, all right, you have three months. And if you can pull it off in three months, we'll build it <laughs> as the top toy for the new Star Wars movie. So have a good time. Yep, yep. But it came out good. I have one. Yeah. Here's a bag with a billion dollars. Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, but that's, I mean, such a classic example of, you know, there's some good luck and a lot of being prepared. Yeah. In, yeah, in, yeah. Any, in any startup. Yeah. It's all about like positioning. Yeah. You know, and how like, quickly I mean, are you able to, to, to put something into effect once you, the idea you have to up. get lucky at some point, but, but you have to make sure that you're in a, a good place to be able to jump onto the train when mm -hmm. it goes past, I think. Um, so what do you got, John? So when David and I record these episodes, we're usually sitting in an office at OATV, which is O'Reilly's sister venture capital firm. That is uh, kind of a floating office. I use it a lot. Other people have, have had it permanently at various times, but now it's mostly just used by people like me who traipse through occasionally. And so the bookcases in this office are um, a little out of date. They're full of books from the last time an O'Reilly editor regularly occupied it, which from a kind of um, stratum dating exercise that I've been through, like a in geological process in the bookshelves, uh, appears to be about 2007. So I'm holding in my hand a book called The Internet, The Missing Manual, the book that should have been in the box. Oh, a the guided internet. tour of the web's best stuff. The box of the internet. The box of the internet. Internet in a box, which I think actually was a product in the early 90s. And I think Tim O'Reilly was involved with it. Oh, really? I, yeah. I believe it. I think it was a very important early internet product, in fact. And this is a David Pogue book, of course. It's a David Pogue book, um, co-authored by J.D. Beersdorfer. You can guess who, who wrote more of it. And uh, the, the striking thing about this, as compared to Internet in a Box, which came out in the early 90s, is that this came out in 2006, so 10 years ago. So it occupies a kind of uncanny valley in the past of the internet. Some things in it are quite modern. Some things are totally outdated and, and the web has moved on. So it has, for instance, 
instructions for setting up your modem to dial through a calling card if you're in a hotel. Useful. Um, something that I don't think I was even doing 10 years ago. It has a section on alternative search engines that refers to the big three search engines. Wait, wait. AltaVista's on there, right? Um, let's get, let's guess. So let's do like a family feud kind of thing. All right. Yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. <laughs> Survey says. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, uh, is, is, I'm going to say Hotbot is in there. I'm going to say. Wait, uh, wait. Are you guessing the big three search engines or the alternative search engines? Just, yeah, the, the alternative, the, the, the list of search engines that it, that it enumerates. Okay. Well, it, it refers to the big three and also to, um, let's see, there are four alternative search engines. So go ahead and guess the big three and the alternatives. In 2006. Definitely Yahoo. Yeah, no, that's, that's for sure. Correct. I'm still sticking with AltaVista. I, I think AltaVista. AltaVista is there on the on the alternatives. Really? Yeah, so by 2006, it would become an alternative. Did Ask Jeeves exist in 2006? I don't think so. Uh, it did. Yeah, it's another alternative. The website formerly known as AskJeeves.com. So did it even become Ask.com by then? Oh, wow. Uh, Hotbot. Hotbot's not on here. Hmm. I remember submitting my, my website to Hotbot, like filling out the little form. And then convincing my so dad good. to let me stay up late because there would be people from the internet coming to visit my website as a result of me submitting it to the search engine earlier. <laughs> so I needed to make sure that all of my instances of fire.gif were, <laughs> were aligned correctly. Wait, wait, what was the precursor to Bing? What was Bing before it was Bing? MSN. Thank and you. that is one of the MSN, big ones here. Yeah. yeah, correct. Yeah, so the big ones here oh, nice. listed here are Google, MSN, and Yahoo. And later in the chapter, it mentions that Google has a web directory, which... Uh, I vaguely it sounds, remember. It sounds fascinating. It used to have a web directory like Yahoo, but certainly doesn't now. Um, and then the, the uh, alternatives are AltaVista, Ask.com, Dogpile. Do you remember oh, this? Dogpile. Like, when any individual web search was so unreliable that you would use Dogpile, which would search like five other ones simultaneously and show you the results. And then um, Vivissimo, which I have never heard of. I've never heard of that either. Anyway, that, that's an interesting thing. And then it has a the introduction to the section on blogs reads thusly. If you want your news fast, furious, and highly opinionated, a web log or blog may be just the thing to spice up your day. Sounds spicy. We should look into those, John. We should. Uh, there's a section on social networking that mentions uh, Friendster, but not Facebook. And there's a, or, or even MySpace, which is odd because MySpace was definitely big by now. And then uh, there's a professional networking section that does mention LinkedIn. And then finally, there's a section on podcasting that's actually the most contemporary part of the book. Does the it process have any has helpful, barely changed. helpful advice? Uh, it, it advises you that there are paid podcasting production tools that you can use as well as free ones. And I think that's, that's the only thing that's gone out of. I don't think there are paid podcasting production tools anymore. Everyone just uses Audacity. Yeah. So um, The Internet, The Missing Manual by David Pogue and J.D. Beersdorfer, possibly available on... Um, eBay or something, but I'll post a link in the show notes to uh, where you can find this perhaps on Safari Books Online, which is O'Reilly's subscription service. Log on. Back capital Log on to Safari Books Online. Use Internet Explorer 6 or higher. <laughs> so, uh, Peter, what's your click spiral? So, I, um, I have to confess, um, I think because of maybe my New England heritage, I've, um, I've cultivated a habit of not falling into click spirals. How do you do it? I, I just try to catch myself when, you know, I, I go to the, the second click through something uh -huh. interesting. But um, but the um, I have spent way too much time over the last, easily the year, probably longer, um, reading um, an increasingly obscure set of works by um, this group of writers from like 1840, hmm. um, New England, of course, uh, mm -hmm. the, the Transcendentalists. 
who are okay. sometimes like confused for a religious bunch, but I, I, the more I read, the less I'm sure that's the case. These were like Ralph Waldo Emerson? Exactly. Emerson was sort of the, the standard bearer, although I think he, mm -hmm. he actively denied it. And the, um, I mean, there's some fascinating things about it. One is that it was, it was back when America was still like an experiment, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like 50 mm -hmm. years old kind of thing. And a lot of these people had, you know, their parents had lived through that if they hadn't. And it was, they were centered in Concord, Massachusetts, which was really where the battle for America, the American Revolution began. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, this real sense in everything they write about, you know, we're creating this new country and this new mm -hmm. society. You know, we, we talk about like old world now and the only reference is like old world wines that's huh. like that's it on a menu and yeah, they yeah, talk yeah. about the old yeah, world yeah. and the new world and they really mean it yeah 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 and everything they do you know and it's painting it's writing it's religion it's how you organize society and they were you know like actively striving mm -hmm. to try to figure out like what what should this country be mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um i mean incredibly earnest and and thoughtful stuff um and so you know i just i keep i keep digging kind of deeper into that yeah, yeah, craziness yeah, yeah. That's awesome. It's it's you know we we tend to think now of uh, of the U.S. and Europe as awfully similar places. I mean that we're you know the the um, Western Europe is is roughly as developed as the U.S. with similar democratic conventions and economic conventions. But in that era, they couldn't have been more different in terms of social organization and, and economic development. That would have been post French Revolution. Um, pre-stable French democracy, for instance, right? Germany is a collection of little, you know, dukedoms, colossally different era, and the American people clinging to, to kind of a narrow ribbon along the, the East mm -hmm. Coast for the most part. Right, and, and trying to figure out, like, what was good and worth keeping about Europe, you know, mm -hmm. and, and especially mm -hmm. yeah. in the arts, they, they were struggling with, like, who's, what is American, what does it mean to be an American author? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's a very, and, and artists, I, I was, you know, going down this wormhole, there's, I was reading a review by one of the, the transcendentalists of a, an exhibit by a painter who's mm -hmm. an American painter. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing, they, they were like, oh, his, his stuff that, you know, every painter would do pictures of stories from the Bible. And they were mm -hmm. like, oh, these are interesting, but not, it's not right, good. But right. the, the landscapes, the vistas of the American landscape and the way he handled that was fantastic. Uh -huh, and and uh -huh. so, you know, you look them up online and yes, they are indeed superb. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing was the, the painter is named Alston. And uh, mm. I mean, you're you're you spent some time in Boston. Yeah, I live in Boston. And you know, I grew up outside of Boston, and I never knew what Alston was named for, and it was huh. really named for the painter. Really yeah. interesting. And a um, painter of of landscapes, uh, sort of, of of the American yeah countryside. And they're they're I mean they're lovely. I yeah, mean, yeah, the, yeah. The light, and I mean, you can take a look; it's easy to find. Yeah, but yeah. um, it's 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 um, you know, it, it's funny because it's you know, you go down this like long winding path, um, and you end up with like, oh, that's how that town that I used to visit occasionally was named. Right, and, right, right. It's it's all all connected somehow. Yeah. You know, I, and I love seeing how this stuff repeats itself, because especially, you know, living and working in the Valley for so many years, you know, we um, we think we invent things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we think we think we're really proud of ourselves. And, you know, this this whole idea that, you know, well, if you do a, a company and it fails, you know, good for mm -hmm, you. That's, mm -hmm. you know, you're learning from that. And, you know, the story. And um, there's an Emerson quote that I, I stumbled across in, uh, in one of his uh, essays called Compensation, if I remember it right. And he said, the good are befriended by weakness and defect. But it's it's exactly the, the same idea, in fact. Right, right. Um, you know, coming from a little bit humbler perspective, maybe, than the, the Valley usually operates from. Uh -huh, but, uh -huh. but Yeah, yeah, yeah. An another renewal. Yeah, exactly. Terrific. Well, once again, if, uh, if listeners would like to send in their own click spirals to us, you can email hardware at O'Reilly.com, and we'll absorb ourselves in them and then report back to you. 
Thank you so much for coming on, Peter. If people want to find you, where's the best place? So the Kenoma website, K-I-N-O-M-A.com. Um, Kenoma on Twitter, and my uh, personal Twitter feed is just P-Hoddy, P-H-O-D-D-I-E. Excellent. Peter Hoddy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>